Hey, everybody. This is Krista Stilwell, Communications Assistant at LFCN. Thanks for listening to the podcast. It's a glimpse into the life of our church. We are ordinary people being transformed into passionate followers of Jesus who join with God in the remaking of all things. We pray that what you hear is a blessing and helps you join God today. If our church can help you and serve you in any way, please drop us a line at 765-447-7655. Enjoy the sermon. Welcome to worship. You may may be seated. My name is Troy, and it's my privilege to welcome you to worship. I serve as one of the pastors here. Great to have you on this Sunday morning, and um, it's a great time for you to join with us. We're beginning a new sermon series today that will carry us through the month of November, and this sermon series we're calling Nothing to Lose. Because we under, when we understand our relationship with God properly, what we come to understand is that we approach life with open hands, that we really do have nothing to lose. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this. I'm sure you have. Sometimes I feel like we live in a culture where we're like the frog that jumps into the pot of lukewarm water and the dial on the burner is turned up incrementally, like one degree at a time, so we don't realize the temperature of the water that we're swimming in. So maybe you don't recognize it, but I think you do. I think you recognize that it, it's impossible to go anywhere these days without some sort of advertisement being attached to it. In fact, in just a few weeks, these sermons will begin to be sponsored. And before every sermon, we'll tell you this sermon is brought to you by... And we're selling that spot to a local business, just as a way, increase revenue, but also as a way to get good branding. I'm totally joking. I'm totally joking. But advertisements are everywhere, and they show up in the most unconventional of places. You probably have recognized that you can't even pump your gas anymore without a screen being there, serving you advertisements while you're filling your tank with gas. It's like somewhere there exists in some corner office some masterminds. And the masterminds say to themselves every day, where is there a section of time in the average human's day where they're doing nothing and they're all by themselves? Where is that section of time? And how can we profit off of that section of time by serving up an advertisement. Let's, let's sell them something in that space. It's everywhere now. I mean, you can't even go to the restroom in a public place anymore without advertising happening to you as you're trying to share that moment with just yourself. It's everywhere. All spaces of our life and most time of our life is commercialized. It's now to the point, and I'm sure this statistic is outdated because it's from January of 2018, but it's now to the point where the average American sees 7,000 advertisements every day. 7,000. 
every single day. Now, this isn't just television. It's not just radio. It's now on the screen. That's your third appendage attached to your body. And the vast majority of advertising has one goal. One goal. To make us feel discontent. To make us feel discontent. The goal of advertising is to make us say, Ooh, I don't like what I have. I, I need that thing. That improved thing. That better looking thing. That more efficient thing, the safer thing. The goal of, of most advertising is to make us feel discontent with what we have so that we enter into this sphere of life that I'm going to call wishfill. Let's call that sphere of life wishfill today. When we're in wishfill, what we want is the new thing, the improved thing, the better looking thing, the faster thing, the more efficient thing, the more stylish thing. And advertising is designed to make us discontent with what we have so that we'll enter into wishful, so that we'll buy that thing. And the whole cycle revolves around us feeling discontent. Now, in light of that current reality, there are two words in the Bible that take on a lot of importance. Two words in the Bible that take on a lot of importance. And they're this. Be content... And be generous. Be content and be generous. We find those commands all throughout Scripture. Be content, be generous. And the truth is we won't be able to do the second thing. We won't be able to be generous unless we are able to do that first thing. Be content. And so today what I want to do is I want to take a look at a passage of Scripture from 1 Timothy chapter 6. And just prior to this passage of Scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is talking to Timothy about how he needs to teach people who are using godliness or their life becoming like God. They're using that for their own gain. And so the idea that these people had was, hey, if I live a certain way, I'll please God, and then God will bless me with all of this stuff. And Paul is arguing with Timothy against that view. And here's what he said. Stand with me, if you would, for the reading of God's Word. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. These are Paul, Paul's words. Paul says this. Actually, godliness is a great source of profit when it is combined with being happy with what you already have. We didn't bring anything into the world, so we can't take anything out of it. We'll be happy with food and clothing. This is God's word for us today. You can be seated. So Paul is saying, you're right. Godliness does lead to great gain. But great gain isn't prosperity. The gain of true godliness, when it's combined with contentment, this is the gain. You're no longer striving to be rich. That's not your focus anymore. The contentment is itself the gain, the profit of godliness. If you have contentment, you are as rich, Paul says, as anyone on the planet because you're not 
desiring. You're not wanting. You're not striving for anything more. You already have it. You don't need it. And so you don't want it. So what Paul says is, is if we want true profit, if we want to lead a truly profitable life, here's his instruction. Cultivate the kind of Christ-like godliness that frees us from the desire. It's the desire that's the problem. If we want to truly be profitable in this life, Paul says, cultivate the kind of character, the kind of godliness in our life that frees us from that desire to be more. The kind of contentment that frees you from the desire for the new thing, the better thing, the more improved thing, the bigger thing. This is the godliness that if you've got that, if you've learned the secret of true contentment, then here's what Paul says. You and I, we are as rich as any person on the planet because what we have, what we have is what everyone else is striving for. Because why do people strive after more? Why do people strive after bigger? Why? They're looking for contentment. They're looking for contentment. <laughs> um, a couple of falls ago, a couple of falls ago, um, you know, we have a couple of garden hoses at our house. They're standard variety garden hoses. And um, I had waited a little bit too long to wrap up the garden hoses, put them away for the winter. So it was already quite cold outside. It had frozen a couple of times. It was cold. And, and um, I had just earlier in that week been watching some television late at night, and there was one of those quick little infomercials for this new and improved garden hose. And I mean, this thing... You could do whatever you wanted to this garden hose, and it could solve all of the problems in the world. I mean, it, you could blowtorch it, run it over with your SUV, put it in the freezer, whatever you want to do, and that thing just wrapped up so nicely. It was amazing. And I thought as, to myself as I was watching that, this is ridiculous. It's a garden hose. Who even cares? Well, a couple days later, there I was wrapping up the garden hose, and it was frozen. And there was probably a little bit of water still in it. And so I'm trying to do that thing to get it, you know. And I had to, like, do the crow, like the, the Hulk Hogan, like, bending a piece of iron pipe thing and just really muscle up on that deal. And, and then it would unravel really quickly, and it was awful. And I thought to myself, and I thought to myself in the back of my head, I thought, man, if I had one of those other hoses, then I wouldn't have to deal with this problem. And I noticed myself like going into Wishville and feeling discontent with my life situation about my garden hose. And I even, I couldn't remember the name of the product, so I tried to Google search for the thing. And if Google would have served me that result, I would have bought I would have bought because I found myself in that place. I bought into the lie of the masterminds. And unfortunately, a lot of us do that. And the lie that the masterminds sell us is that contentment is found if we can get this thing or that thing. 
or that other thing. But we all know it, right? We, in these moments of honesty and transparency where we recognize the foolishness of our ways, we all know that the masterminds are selling us a lie, that it never works. Because if we get that thing, pretty soon there's something else that's better or bigger or looks nicer or works better. More stuff, better stuff doesn't bring us contentment. Contentment only comes to us, Paul says, when we reject the lie, when we die to the lie. When we die to the lie that contentment is found through what we acquire, then we begin to realize that contentment is only found when we're no longer desiring to acquire more things or better things or prettier things. And if we reach that state in our life where the desire is taken care of, then what Paul says is we are as wealthy as any person on the face of the planet because what everybody else is striving for is contentment and we have it. That, Paul says, is the great gain of godliness. That is the profit of godly living that no one or nothing can take away from you. And then Paul says this. He says this in the next line. He says, you know what? You brought nothing into this world, and you're not going to take anything with you. In other words, let's take a broader look at our life and realize that the second we breathe our last breath and we die— we lose everything. Everything. You don't have anything when you're born into this world. How weird would that be if you were born and clutching like a trust fund or something? When you exit the world, you have exactly the same amount of stuff as when you enter into it. Nothing. Nothing. A couple of years ago, I was flying to Austin, Texas to attend um, a church leadership conference and um, I was at the Indianapolis airport, and I was going through the TSA line, and in front of me was a lady. And I don't think she was a regular traveler, a regular flyer. And this is definitely post-9-11, so all the new travel carry-on regulations were in full effect. And the, the lady was in front of me, and she was going through the TSA thing, and, and um, they ran her bag you know, through the scanner deal. And then one of the agents came over to her and said, ma'am, we're going to have to go through some of the items in your bag with you. And um, she had like a bottle of, is like some hair product or shampoo or something. And it was definitely not three ounces. It was, it was quite large. And uh, the agent was like, you can't take this with you onto the flight. You're going to have to leave it here. And she was all upset by that. And she was like, do you understand how much this, this hair product costs or whatever? And he was like, ma'am, if you want to get on that flight, you got to leave it here. And, and then there was a couple of other vanity sort of items. And, and uh, finally, there was a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the agent was like, you can't take this. Uh, and she was like, she was all up in arms, all up in arms. And the phrase that kept repeated was, ma'am, if you want to get on that flight, if you want to get on that airplane and leave Indianapolis to wherever you're going, you cannot take those things with you. And the point Paul is trying to make is that someday when we're leaving this world for the next world, when we're transitioning from this world to the next, if we want to get on that flight, 
We're going to have to leave it all behind. That is 100% a fact that you can take to the bank with you. When we transition from this life into the next, from this world into the next world, we're not taking any of our worldly possessions on that flight with us. That's how it will be one day. One day we won't want or we won't need that stuff anymore. We'll leave it all behind. And the question is, will we miss it? Will we miss it? How tightly are we holding on to it in this life? Because if we are clinging to it now, when that day comes, it's going to really hurt to let it go. Paul is saying, when that day comes, when we lose it all as we leave this world, it will be worthless to us. So don't put much worth in it today. One day, it won't matter. So don't put much worth in it today. Paul is saying, let the stuff of our lives mean to us as much as it meant when we entered into this world. It was worthless. I mean, when we entered into this world, we weren't grasping, we weren't clinging. So don't cling to anything now. That's what Paul is saying. So if you have a nice house, praise God. But don't think that house is worth anything to cling to. If you have a smaller house or an apartment, and you don't really love where you live, don't think that the fancier house is anything to be envious of or anything worth feeling discontentment about because you don't have it. One day, you're going to lose it all anyways. So, and here's the trick, live like that Today, lose it all now. Don't cling to it now. Don't grasp after anything now. Today, be willing to let it go. And this is the secret of true profit. This is it. This is if I was going to go on tour and I was going to have some speaking tour where I tried to fill auditoriums to tell people the secret of true profit, first of all, it would be a huge disappointment, but this is what I would say. This is the secret of truth wealth. The secret of true wealth is not how to make your money work for you. It's not residual income. It's not how to maximize your earnings in the earning potential years of your life, because that's, that way of thinking is always about more, and there's just never enough. The secret is contentment. It's cultivating a way of life that learns how not to desire, how not to want. And then Paul addresses some stuff to rich people at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6. And when I say Paul talks to rich people, already 99% of this room is like, okay, I'm cool on this, I'm out, I'm out, because it doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich. And the funny thing about rich is that it's a label that's always attached to somebody who has a little bit more than us. A little bit, who makes a little bit more than we make. But if we were to zoom out, like let's zoom the lens out, and we were to take like this global historical look at the world, 
we would realize that even if we're poor in America today, our standard of living is better than that of a king 200 years ago. We live better than kings lived 200 years ago. I mean, there are so many things like indoor plumbing and all the rest of the stuff that we take for granted, but we live royal lives according to historical standards. So here's what Paul tells Timothy to say to the rich, and this is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Tell people who are rich at this time not to become egotistical, not to place their hope on their finances, which are uncertain. Instead, they need to hope in God, who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. Tell them to do good, to be rich in the good things they do, to be generous, to share with others. And when they do these things, they will save a treasure for themselves that is a good foundation for their future. And that way, they can take hold of what is truly life. So, if you're rich, by historical standards, listen up. Paul has some words. Don't be egotistical. Don't be arrogant. Don't get life from that and make all of that your identity. And don't put your trust in it. Don't put your trust in it. Because Paul knows what we all should have learned in 2008. Wealth is here today, and it's gone tomorrow. And the one thing that's certain is we just cannot take it with us. We can't take it with us. Instead, Paul says, put your trust in God who richly provides all of this stuff for your enjoyment. And if you're rich, Paul says, make sure you are also rich in generosity. If you're wealthy, make sure you're wealthy spiritually too. But being rich in your willingness to share, your willingness to care about others. And then he says this, and this is what I really want us to focus on. By doing that, you are storing up treasure, what Paul says, in your future. And what he's talking about there is, He says you're storing up treasure, but what he means is your post-mortem future. So here's the thing. If we cling to our stuff, if we want to have more stuff, it becomes worthless to us when we die. But if we live like God by our willingness to give and give and to share and to share, you do take it with you, and it lasts forever. Now we're taught, This paradoxical principle of profit in the book of 1 Timothy. And here it is. Cling to your money and you lose it forever. Share it or give it away and you keep it forever. This is the paradoxical principle of the economy of God's kingdom. What we cling to in this life we lose in the life to come. What we share and what we give away, we gain in the life to come. And we're taught now, we're taught, if you grew up and you're under 45, you're under 50 years old, we we were taught at an early age, begin planning for your retirement. 
Begin planning for your retirement. We were taught you can't trust Social Security. It might not even be there when you need it. So start planning for your own retirement now. And listen, that's a really good thing. Listen to that advice. It's necessary. But I'm a pastor. So the, what I'm, what I'm going to say to you is the retirement we really need to plan for. The retirement we need to really start investing in is the retirement that begins the minute we die. And the way that we invest into that future is through generosity. I mean, God has been and God will continue to be outrageously generous to us. And we want to replicate that as God's people by being generous towards others, by sharing and by giving. And the only thing that lasts forever in this entire world, the only thing that lasts forever is love. And when you're investing in love today in this life, it goes with you. It's the one thing that you can take with you. So please, church, hear me. Be thinking about and be planning for your earthly retirement. But please take into consideration those retirement years will, will what, last 10 years, 25 years, if you're really lucky? Yeah, plan for it. But the retirement that I'm talking about is the kind of retirement that lasts forever. The one that we really want to be concerned with is the retirement that never, ever ends. And here's the principle we have to keep in mind. If you hold on to it, you lose it forever. If you give it away in love, you keep it forever. Godliness, Paul says, with contentment, that's the profitable way of life in this world. And you can have a sincere heart, and you can deeply desire to be generous. But can I be honest with you? We'll never become generous if we're still caught up in wishville. If we really want to be generous, but our heart is discontent, and we want that, and we want that, and we want that, it just won't, generosity will not happen. I mean, we can say to ourselves, this is the month of November, we start thinking about next year already. We can say to ourselves, next year is the year I'm going to give away X percent. But as we're saying that to ourselves, if we still have discontentment in our heart, it won't happen. Because January will come, and we'll be going after the stuff. And at the end of the month of January, we'll realize we don't have anything left over to share. And February will come, we'll be going after a different kind of stuff. And at the end of every month and after the, at the end of every year, we'll realize that the problem isn't our desire to be generous. The problem is our desire to want the stuff, the discontentment in our hearts. And as long as it's there, it's like having a gash on our body and we're bleeding out. And if we have a gash on our body and we're bleeding out, that is not the moment in our life and that is not the time when we can be thinking about the welfare of other people. We're bleeding. And if we don't stop the bleeding, we're going to bleed out. If we have this discontentment in our hearts, 
We're bleeding out. And it makes us self-centered. And it becomes really all that we're thinking about. And generosity isn't going to be too high on our radar because we're too busy chasing all of the stuff. So Paul says, here's the antidote. The antidote is a godly life centered on contentment. And when that happens, we're profitable. Whether or not our bank account increases or decreases, we live this profitable kind of life because we are experiencing the thing that everybody else is striving for. And that kind of contentment empowers us to be investing in the future. So if if you're okay with it, I'd just like to give you three quick principles. Three quick, quick principles for cultivating this kind of a godly heart that's centered on contentment. And the first is this. Get all of your life from Christ. All of your life from Christ. This is no secret. You've heard me say this several times. All of us were born with this desire to feel fully alive. We want to feel fully alive. We hunger for the feeling that our life is significant. We hunger for the feeling like we have worth. Every human being longs for that. And here's the truth that I have come to base my life on. It is only the love of God that can actually satisfy that desire. It is only the love of God that can actually fill that need. And if, it's, if we're not satisfying that desire, if we're not getting all of our life from Christ, then at the core of our being, we're discontent, and we're going to try to fill it with stuff, with things, and it's not going to work. And the brilliance of the age in which we live in is that advertisers have come to understand that we are creatures born with this desire, that at our heart we're discontent. And they know that if they make us, if they feed into that level of discontentment, but they also sell to us that the way to find contentment is through these avenues or through these things or by these products or these services or experience this trip of a lifetime, whatever it may be, then we feel as if that will satisfy us, but it never, ever does. The only way to break the cycle is to realize who gave us life and where life comes from. Get all of your life from God. That's principle number one. Principle number two is this. Seek first God's kingdom. Seek first God's kingdom. First priority, give to God. Now a kingdom, right? A kingdom is a realm. It's a realm. And at the top of that realm is a king. The king is the king over the realm. And if we live in the realm of the kingdom of that king, then our job is to submit ourselves to the lordship of the king who rules the realm. And as we do this in our relationship with God, what we realize is that we confess to God that Jesus actually is Lord, which means he can tell us what to do. And we submit ourselves to God's leadership. Now, sometimes what we say to ourselves is that Jesus is our Lord, but we don't treat him as Lord. We treat him as kind of like a consultant. So we're still the Lord of our life, 
but at like important moments of our life, we'll kind of consult Jesus to see what Jesus might have to say. And there's a huge difference between treating Jesus as a consultant and treating Jesus as Lord. Because if Jesus is Lord, he's Lord over all of our life, the whole thing. Lord over our calendar, Lord over our time, our finances, our body, our possessions, our work, our play, everything, even the things we hope for or want or desire, Jesus is Lord over that too. So submit everything to him. And that's not just a one-time moment. That's not just a two-times moment. That is a daily moment, a regular moment. And what we find is this. When we submit all that we have to God, we no longer cling to it. Because you can't submit anything with a closed hand. You can only submit something with an open palm. So practice number two, seek first the kingdom of God. Here's the third one. Practice generosity. And the key word there is practice. Try it out. Try it out. One of the best ways to know if we're content or discontent is to look at our life and ask the question, how generous am I? How generous am I? How much of my time, my energy, my resources do I actually give away? Now, the average American gives 2.3% of their income away every year, and they feel really good about it. They feel really good about it. They call themselves generous. But we can't conform our identity or our understanding of generosity to the culture in which we live. We have to do it according to God. We have to be generous as God is generous. And it also works the other way around. One of the best ways to cultivate the kind of generosity that God desires to see in us is to start being generous. In fact, there's all sorts of sociological and psychological studies that have shown a, significant, a statistically significant relationship between the level of a person's happiness and the level of a person's generosity. Giving stuff away is a way of cultivating a content heart. And I suspect this is true because every single one of us in this room, we were created in the image of God. God made us, and he God formed us, and God's desire is that our life would represent him, that it would, rep- that it would replicate him to the world. And so when we're generous, we're acting like God in this world. We're acting according to who we should be. It makes us happy, and there's joy in that. Now, here's the truth. Here's the truth. There is a gravity. We underestimate this. Our stuff, our possessions, has a gravity to it. The more stuff we have, the more possessions that we have, the more that pole of gravity exerts itself over us. And we also underestimate how much we actually want and how much we actually need. In fact, if I was to take you all to our home this afternoon and we were to open up the doors of my closet, you would see I don't have a lot of clothes, but I have several shirts a few shirts, several shirts, I don't know. I have some shirts that I haven't worn in a year. Like, I haven't worn them in a year. And if you were to say to me just, hey, do you like that shirt? I would say to you, oh, yeah, that's one of my favorites. And then you would say to me, yeah, but you haven't worn it in a year, and you would realize that I am a liar. I don't like it. If I liked it, I would have worn it. But I haven't worn it, so I don't really like it. What is that? That's the pull of gravity on us. And so 
a good practice to start is to realize, like, what do you need? And if you don't need it, if you haven't used it, if you haven't worn it, if it sat in the corner of your garage for months or for years, here's how you cultivate an initial practice of generosity. You just start giving it away. You just start giving it away. You lighten that gravitational pull. What you're doing is you're practicing breaking the grip that the culture of stuff has on our lives. Three principles. Get all your life from Christ. Seek first God's kingdom. And practice generosity. If you want a really practical and a really tangible way to begin the practice of generosity. We've got an avenue for you to do that. Every single year, our church participates in something called Christmas for Everyone. It's one of the better things that we do. We partner with other churches in our community. We take care of children and families from our own local community who may not be able to have Christmas this year. And we come together and we say, we got you take care of you. Christmas for Everyone is a great event in the life of this church. We have 75 children's names waiting in the lobby for someone to sponsor this year. We're asking for each child to receive gifts of no more than $40. For some of us, that's a drop in the bucket. For others of us, that's a big chunk of change. But I'm inviting you to practice that way of generosity. Secondly, let me say this. What is true for us as individuals is also true for us as a church. So as individuals, I'm asking you to get all of your life from Christ, to seek first God's kingdom, and to begin to practice the way of generosity. And for our church, we're also trying to do that as well. You may not realize this. 15.5% of every dollar you give to us, we give away. We don't keep it for ourselves. We live off of 84.5%. We give 5.5% to support the global expansion of God's mission around the world. We give 5% to support the expansion of God's mission here in northwest Indiana. We give 2.5% to support um, pastors and missionaries who are retired. We give 2.25% to support a local educational institution. 15.5% of what we give, we give away. We do it. It's the first 15.5% of what we receive. We give. And we give without question. And when there's months where we're under budget, we give. And when there's months where we're over budget, we give. The same things I'm asking of you are the things that our church is also trying to put into practice. Every single month, we buy and we provide and we pack the bags for eight students at Wyant, for the food for eight students at Wyandotte Elementary so that they can have meals over the weekend. We fund that. We give it away. If there's need in our congregation, we try to meet it. We have a benevolence account that we try to support the tangible needs of people within our own community. We are intentional about trying to practice this way of generosity. Why? Why? Because we believe that this is the way of God in this world. And we also believe this. There is no other place in our community where lives are changed or transformed at such an effective level than as the local church. 
So if you want to partner with God's mission in the world, if you want to be a part of the transformation of individuals and the transformation of a community, if you want what you give away to be useful in its work, begin that practice of generosity by weekly or monthly contributing to the life of God that's transplanted through the work of this church and the world. Some of you are saying there's no way I could give 10%. I get it. But maybe you could start with one or two or practice on three or practice on four. And why am I asking you to do this? It's not because we need your money. I mean, we'll take it. I'm asking you to do this because I believe that the way of God in this world are God's people learning how to share and how to give. And I want to see you become more like Jesus.